One of those who were with us from the beginning has decided to get married. Then she got married and they decided to go to his little church down the road because they're way more needed there than here. It used to be called the vineyard. It's now called the dwelling place. Where are you, Julia? Come up here. I want a hug. Come up here. So Julia was with us from the very beginning in our home, has continued through five years in firstly our table community, and then Chris and Wendy took on the leadership, and uh, it has been the most fabulous time. Julia, you, we love you deeply. Am I right, Meryl? Come and tell us what you like most about Julia. Oh my gosh, I'm going to try and not get emotional. Just look at John, then you won't. Julie is one of those incredibly talented people, but she is humble with her giftings, incredibly humble. You, you, you would never hear things from her mouth that she's achieved, and yet she, she just contributes. She's a contributor. She, she's a giver. doesn't matter what she's doing, where she is, the context of her, uh, the table community, she she bakes gourmet bread for us and she's just incredible and honestly julia you that's the emotional part you feel like a daughter in this house so thank you you got a good one john <laughs> and she got a good one in you i know that so we just love you both feel very privileged to be part of your story and your journey and your ongoing journey and we are sad to release you but we are really happy that you two are in a spiritual home together. Do you want to say goodbye? What? <laughs> what? Say goodbye. What do you want me to say? I don't know. <laughs> goodbye. I don't know. What do you say in these moments? I don't know. Um, I've never really done this in a context like this before, so I don't really know. Um, yeah, I think it's a lot. I didn't anticipate this, <laughs> so I definitely didn't prepare anything. Um, but that's pretty on par, you know, for the community. You know, just got to always be ready. Um, yeah, I feel like it's been an exquisite five years, and I feel like I can't look at too many faces, or I too might get emotional. Um, but yeah, I feel like, yeah, it's been a beautiful journey. I think it's been just stunning getting to be a part of Genesis since the beginning. And it's been wonderful to watch this community grow and flourish just the way that it has and under such awesome leadership. And I think, too, just Ty, like watching you grow has just been the most fun these last five years. And I'm so proud of you and what you and Haley have built, too. And so it's just been such a gift, too. You guys are like brothers and sisters to me. And so I think to see this community that you guys have built up and to just be kind of like what Meryl, what you said, too, I really feel like I have been mothered and fathered here. And so I think just to receive such deep love, um, just deeper than I've ever experienced, really. Um, yeah. And yeah, I feel like I have a thousand things I could say, but I'm going to stop rambling. Yep. But I love you. <laughs> I love you too. So after tonight's gathering, in the corner over there, we're going to pray for 
Julia, as she goes, these are important things. We want to come in through the front door and leave through the front door. No ghosting, no disappearing, just key in community. And then one day you feel the knocking on heaven's door. It's the end of a chapter and the beginning of a new one. And then we move on with all the beauty and the wonder that makes the church the church. So we love you. We'll continue to love you. We expect you to come visit, John. Otherwise, you and I will have a little conversation. And uh, so we'll pray for you at the end. Is that all right? Then it's not rushed. Okay, fabulous. Um, secondly, I want to say hi and thank you, but to two different groups of people. Uh, DJ snuck in at the last minute. DJ, would you just wave to everyone? So DJ leads a church in Downey, a fabulous church in a very Latino community, and I've just loved how he has embraced this, uh, the gospel in a cross-cultural setting and done an outstanding job in the community. DJ and his wonderful wife, Krista, are also one of the eight couples that oversee what we do globally called Genesis Collective and the churches we plant. And, but this morning, and this is where the thanks comes, and other times I would have brought you up, but sorry, Samuel's going to get the head. Okay. And... Um, so this morning, because it was their seventh birthday, they asked for some of our crowd to go and help with the children so that their community could get involved uh, and enjoy the, the moment. And so help me, Sam, where are you? It was you, stand up. It was you and KJ? Yeah. You, KJ? KJ, Emily, and Hannah. Hannah, where are you? All right, just stand, please. And Emily, is she here? Oh, there we are, there we are. Just stand, please, if you don't mind. I'm just so proud of all of you just going to serve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really, I appreciate it big time. We're pretty busy in our community, and to still go and help out, I just warms my heart. Samuel, come and join me if you don't mind. Are you homie? So this is a very special man. Uh, Samuel is from Brazil. Yes. But he came to, went to plant a church in Porto. Exactly. And the name of the church is? Surf Church Porto. In two minutes, tell us what you love about your church. <laughs> well, Jesus. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Now, he actually is in this church. Yes. Oh, <laughs> just here. Well, first, thank you very much. I was just saying, DJ, DJ said, what do you want to do right now before dinner? I said, whatever you have up to me. Uh, he said, do you want to go to Hollywood? Everyone wants to see Hollywood and stuff. Well, I don't care about Hollywood. What about going to Costa Mesa, Chinese there, just starting the service? Great idea. Let's just do it. <laughs> and we came here on the way to having dinner. So I'm so amazed to be here. I can't believe, actually. So... Thank you. Thank you for having me here and uh, embarrassing me bringing the front to everyone. I guess it's, I understood it's part of the church, huh? Yes, I just saw that. Amazing. My church, what I most love in those people is the, um, how much we suffer because of Jesus and we still live for Jesus. And in Jesus' name, we'll continue proclaiming Jesus anywhere we go. That's beautiful. Beautiful. All right, all the surfers, I want you to stand. All those who surf, if you've got a wetsuit, you stand. Now. That's my son with a t-shirt at the back. 
and my son-in-law, the guy over there. All right, so just remain standing. I want you to look here. So these people have just committed themselves to fasting and praying for you, Samuel. Amen. Amen. And uh, what would you have them pray for? Well, I was just sharing with GJ um, that I don't know what God has to us for the next year, but I know it will be big. So pray with me. I don't know what it is, but I do believe that God has great things to Portugal and for us. And you are busy setting up a training program for church planters in, exactly. in Portugal. We are. Hopefully, we'll start in 2020, um, October, uh, 2023. And um, that's one of the things, one of the reasons why I'm here. We are recruiting people to go to Portugal. So, and there's amazing things that God will do in Portugal. The harvest is huge, and we need people to work there. So, Please come. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so will you all pray for them and the community there? Fabulous. Come on, give this wonderful man a round of applause. Glad you're here, man. All right, so we have one more thing. This is kind of part of the message, and it isn't all at the same time. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to call Rosie up. Uh, Derek and Rosie have been friends. Well, Derek and I have been friends from the early 80s, about 84, mid-80s. And then uh, he went to do his MBA in England, got headhunted by Coke, and spent the rest of his professional career uh, as part of the Coke Global Executive. And then he contacted me to say, uh, are you still in LA? And, and, you know, OC isn't really LA, but I said yes, just to be nice. And uh, so we've reconnected over the last uh, couple of years. In fact, I was at your house when my heart freaked out the first time. And um, so we were having lunch together on Thursday. Rosie told a little bit of her story, which I already knew. But I thought, you know, given where we are, and I'll explain in a moment, uh, I think 15 minutes of her story would be a really, really wonderful thing. So Rosie, come up here if you don't mind. Don't tell me you're making notes now. Would you like to be seated, my dear? Meryl, what do you like about Rosie? She rolls when I don't like. There's nothing. Because? Well, the two of you were born in the same month and the same year. Okay. And their parents are besties. Go back decades. So this is a crazy story. Rosie, it's fabulous to have you. <laughs> Your mic's not, not working. Nervous. Your We're mic's not, not working. Do you want? That's fine. Do you want to put a stand and we'll just lean into it? That's why I get paid the big bucks, AJ, right there. That's all right. I'll just shout. No, no, it's fine. We wanted to record. All right, so we're going to dive straight into it. I've asked for Rosie for, for 15 minutes to tell a very important part of her story. Now, you know what's interesting? Someone came to me tonight before the gathering and she said she felt God say, she needs to be prayed for because she can't have a baby. She doesn't have a regular period. Now, how crazy is that in the light of you coming all the way down from Malibu to tell your story? So, here we go. You in a boarding school really young. Yes. Boarding school means that you live on campus 
and attend school in the semester time. How old were you when you were a farm girl? Yeah, farm girl, six years old. We went to boarding school. I was um, one of seven children, and it was just the done thing. We were too far away from a normal school, regular school, so we were shipped off to boarding school. So what was that like? Well, it meant kind of like a summer camp, but at six years old, it's a little rough, so you had to polish your shoes, take care of your laundry, get your teeth brushed, when it was lights out, jump into bed, um, you know, all those type of things. So it was tough. So again, just forgive the brevity of the moment, Rosie, but when did you develop bulimia? Well, I grew up, as I said, I was one of seven children, um, a wonderful family, but when you're the last of seven kids, I sort of fought to be heard. Um, I felt perhaps um, a little neglected or unheard, although I have the most wonderful mother and father. Um, and so I would say when I gave my life to the Lord at 17, which that in itself is an amazing story, what God was doing in the context of our family. There were several family members that got saved at that time. The bulimia hit me at almost at the same time. That's fascinating. What do you think happened? What triggered that eating disorder? I think it is multifaceted. It's never just one thing, but I think um, growing up in a large family, um, the need to perform, it was like if you performed, you were noticed and kind of like the Harry Potter movies, um, you know, if you're the head boy or a prefect or a house captain, that was a big deal. And so I felt a lot of pressure as a child to, to be something or be someone, to be noticed um, and recognized, I guess. So I think it was a multiple kind of multifaceted um, elements that came together. So without being crass and... Uh, Rosie is totally happy to tell her story. How severe was your bulimia? Oh. Um, let's just say it was um, a real nightmare. It was like being on a roller coaster um, of emotions. Um, I was a believer, but I was a very young believer. I had just given my life to the Lord, and um, so I didn't really know God, but I wanted to know him more, and I knew I needed him. I think that was the most defining thing for me. I knew that, um, in fact, very early on in my life, at about eight, which said, I have delivered you from a power too great for you. But that was when I was 18. I only really came to full deliverance at 25. But it was almost like God saying, I have died on the cross, I've delivered you, and I was to fill in the blank. And that meant walking it out. But um, so basically a cycle, Severity. yes, yeah. so a cycle was, there'd be a trigger. Something would trigger me, like, uh, you know, somebody would say something unkind. I had a bad day at work or a bad day at college. Um, and I would then um, begin to eat. And I would ravage food. 
it was terrible. I, it is a bit embarrassing to share this, but anyway, I'm free, so that's okay. Um, I would eat a loaf of bread, a tin of biscuits, um, chocolates, slabs of chocolates, um, biltong, burrovos, which is a South African delicacy. It's kind of a dried meat and it's lovely. So I would eat that. I would just eat and eat. It was a, it was a, obviously extremely abnormal, um, but it was just get anything you can into yourself. And because this is your last chance, you know, kind of thing. And then, then this I had down to a fine art. It also sounds very bad. I'd wait about 45 minutes because I knew that was the optimal time for me to be able to throw it up. It's very wrecking on your body. Um, if you've just eaten to go and throw up is not gonna work. You have to wait for... And you were a nurse during this time? Yes. And I was trying to hold it together and actually I did, remarkably. I don't really know how. Outwardly, um, I looked okay. Uh, but inwardly, you know, I definitely wasn't okay. There was just this ocean of emotions and up and down, up and down. And then I would come very often face on the floor on a carpet somewhere and just weep to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I do this. Can you save me? Can you get me out of this? And, you know, I'm, to, I'm 61, Meryl and I. Um, and so back in the day, especially in South Africa, there was no one who could help me. They didn't even know really what bulimia was, let alone how to treat it. So that was the pain of just the eating, the vomiting, the repenting. Lord, I'm sorry. Then something would trigger me and then the whole thing would start again. At my worst, I would do it six times a day. Too many times I would have a bleeding throat and that even wasn't enough to stop me. You know, I. I I would obviously worry about the consequences because by now I had lost my periods. I wasn't having normal periods. And, um, and I'm from a family. My mother has 68 great-grandchildren. <laughs> so you can imagine not being able to contribute in that sort of family setting. It was the worst sentence you could have. At what point in time did Derek come into your world? Well, thank God for that. <laughs> But actually, I had always said to the Lord, Lord, uh, I was boyfriendless, I was dateless until I met Derek uh, at 20. Was that by choice? Yes. Because, I mean, you're pretty, so that couldn't have been... No, that, so by Others choice... Others didn't have a word from the Lord. No, no. <laughs> Some tried, but I said, listen, I can't even put my own life together. Please, I just can't cope with you right now. You know, I'm, it's, it's enough coping with myself, so... But thank God, he did bring the most beautiful soul into my life. And by that time, um, I was already over the worst. I was, I was actually fine, uh, much better. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was completely well, but um, just the love and now that I had somebody gave me a tremendous um, just joy and confidence because um, we're skipping over a lot of detail, but just God did some amazing miracles for me, and he showed up in incredible ways. Um, so I, I had really grown a lot in confidence in my relationship to the Lord and to the Holy Spirit. And now yeah. you've got a, a body that you're not capable of having children. Yes. Now there's a and remarkable that, moment yes. in which all of that changed. Yes. So... Well, actually, I think the moment you're referring to, I'll, I'll quickly explain. So I was 
on the ward one night, um, and in a typical hospital, if you're on night duty, you, the nurses in this particular hospital, we'd sit in the middle of the ward and your patients would be all around you. So fortunately, everyone was sleeping, the ward was calm, and I had taken my Bible with me and I said, Lord, I'm just gonna start reading. So I sat at the table with this little gooseneck lamp and I began to read and I got to Matthew 4:23, and it said, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel so Jesus was preaching the gospel and healing all types of diseases and sicknesses. And I stopped there. The Bible sort of almost flashed up at me. And I said, Lord, do you even know what bulimia is? And I just felt the Holy Spirit say to me, yes, I do. So I said, but do you know how to heal it? And again, he just said, yes, I do. So I said, Lord, I'm 18 years old. This was back then. I'm confused. Um, I'm oppressed by this thing. Um, I don't really know who you are. If you are the Alpha and the Omega, I'd heard that's been said somewhere. I didn't really... Sounds great. Sounds it? great. Yeah. I didn't really know what it meant, but I just said it. If you are the Alpha and the Omega, I am asking you to heal me. Oh, and I said, if you are the God of this universe, I want you to heal me, but I need a sign. I want it done in 48 hours. <laughs> Why not? It's the obvious thing to say. I was desperate. I was desperate. The 47th hour, like most of us oh, girls know, several, um, I just felt I needed to go to the toilet. Everything God's ever done for me seems to be in a toilet, not like Moses in the burning bush. Minus the, <laughs> minus the toilet. That's my burning bush. But um, I went to the toilet and I had started a period. And I dropped down on my knees and I could feel the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't so much the bleeding, which that in itself was a shock. It was, he said to me, I am who I say I am. And I'll never forget that moment because it laid the foundation for the rest of my life. You know, it, he was the I am and he had showed up at the 47th hour. But then, like a dog, I went straight back to the vomit. Like the Bible says, because emotionally I wasn't yet well. He'd given me my sign, but I had to now walk it out, practice it. Yeah. So to those who are wrestling with eating disorders here, I would say any disorder actually because this is transferable to young men you know if, uh, I hope I'm able to say this you, are, you know you're about to say you, you know you young guys if you're grappling with pornography um, it's a bulimia it's like a cancer that will eat away at your soul um, if there are strongholds in your life that are ruining your relationship with the Holy Spirit be it, you know, um, eating disorders, overeating, that's something that's often not addressed. It's the same kind of spirit, alcoholism, um, pornography, lust, uh, sexual immorality, all these things, you know, they all in the same category. And the answer is the Holy Spirit, is Jesus. How? Give, give me three practical ways that people can apply what you've said to their situation. Number one, you have to acknowledge I have a problem. I think that's just the basics. You know, it took me 
it was very evident I had a problem. You know, I was thin. My, my brothers were scared to hug me too tight. They thought that I would just sort of crumble. But um, so number one, I think acknowledge, you know, don't trick yourself because our, our minds are very clever. We sort of um, play tricks with ourselves and say, oh, it's not that bad. I've just done it once. You know, I'm not going to do that again. And, and yet, you know, two weeks later, we add it again. So I'd say, number one, acknowledge it, come to the Lord with it. Number two, this is the hardest part, bring it to someone else. You've got to bring it into the light because if you keep it buried, it has its power. So bring it into the light. And then number three, pay the price to do the hard work. It's not easy. It took me seven years, seven years of this roller coaster up, down, up, down. But the exciting part, I was journaling at this time. And what I noticed, it was small incremental steps to, to wholeness. It wasn't just a big miracle. You know, he did the miracle by giving me the sign, and he's done other miracles in my life after that. Um, but it was small little steps towards wholeness and toward retaining my relationship with the Holy Spirit, because that's kind of what gets severed every time you just defy him and say, no, I'm just going to go and throw up now. You know, so... Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Give her a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Ty. I'm sorry, those of you who had my back during that interview. It's not even a nice back. Thanks. There are certain pieces that are very evident in our community at this time that uh, we who are privileged to lead this space are um, very aware of. We are praying for you, we are meeting with you, we're asking God to touch you and change you, arrest you, and um, all of it. Is Hannah gone? She was gonna read the text for tonight. I think, because she was on, on Kitty's duty. Okay. David, come on. Come and read the passage. Is it too far forward, AJ? David, the reader. All right, here we go. Yeah, so we'll be reading Matthew 9, 14 through 17, I believe. Uh, then John's disciples came and asked, sorry, uh, asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the, wine, uh, the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Beautiful, thank you. All right, so what we are doing right now, peeps, is exploring what it looks like to be men and women 
who are compelled by and fully immersed with practicing the spiritual disciplines. Um, the CSB uses that phrase in Galatians where it says people of the spirit and they use the word spiritual. I think there's a beautiful probability that lies before us. As Rosie said, it is the success of increments that we celebrate, not the failures of moments. And uh, this is not just a cool series we can do and then we kind of move on to the next series. The possibility of implementing this into our lives is not only desirable, but it's measurably effective. Uh, I'm really excited about tonight. I was actually listening to your talk, John Mark, at Bridgetown, and I loved it and I'd recommend it. Um, it actually freed me up to be able to just tell some stories tonight. But uh, I want to take you just for a brief moment to explore what fasting can look like in your life and mine and ours as a community. The idea here is that Jesus uses two kind of images. The one is a fashion image. He says, look, you can't put a patch, a new patch on an old garment or an old piece of fabric. And the idea there is that God wants to do new work in us so that when the patch comes, when God comes to add completion, it doesn't tear. I love Rosie's honesty. Thank you, Rosie, for seven years after the divine encounter in a restroom where she started bleeding. And it still took seven years of diligent fighting, wrestling, pushing hard into God, doing it in community that ultimately brought her healing. They have four wonderful kids. They're expecting their first grandbaby. And you can't borrow mine anymore. You're now going to have your own. Um, it's a beautiful idea. And then the, the wineskin wine idea. Jesus says that uh, this is a fasting conversation. And so God wants to shape the wineskin in you and me. That as he pours more wine into us, we can hold it. It won't just splash and come to naught. Um, just out of interest, how many of you have ever, just we'll do a quick show of hands. How many of you have ever missed one meal with intentional fasting. Just put up your hand. Okay. How many of you have done one day of fasting? Okay. How many of you have done three days, like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Okay. Thanks, Ty. How many of you have done a week? How many of you have done more than a week? Okay. Um, how many of you have done a water-only fast of three or more days okay beautiful beautiful well what it tells us is that written into this community is a hunger and a desire for us to be men and women who can partner with the holy spirit to facilitate transformation um, i i just want to put a disclaimer and i hate fasting as a human being i am a hedonist i'm a pleasure-seeking animal i find no pleasure in pummeling myself uh, Dana asked me about my ultramarathon running days, and that was 90k, it was just over 50 miles. But you see, there was pleasure in the journey. But the idea of just abstaining brings out the very worst in me. I go all, I go all grumpy, I, I, get, I get all desperate. I remember we were doing a fast, which I'll refer to in a moment, and after the, the, the worship time, we were driving home, and there were a bunch of people, like over here, having beers together and um, eating at a, at a restaurant. And I remember driving past. Now, give me some grace, because I was probably about 30 years old. And I just freaked out at them, not at them. 
But in my car, I'm, we're doing this for you. You don't even know. You're drinking your beer and you're having your food and you're having steaks. And I've got to go home and have a glass of water with a splash of lemon. It's just not fair. I was not a happy camper. So I'm not one of those mystics who loves this, who kind of checks it off twice a week you fast and then twice a year you do a, a longer fast. I find no physical pleasure in fasting. The only problem is, Meryl will tell you, is that we have seen God do incredible things when we have fasted. Twice, and there are many other occasions, Jesus says something like this, when you fast, or then you will fast. It's, it's, in, it's kind of a coupling with all the other great disciplines that are on the table for us to enjoy or endure. Now, right at the outset, it's obvious to say, as sociologists speak of, we're living under social acceleration. Everything's just going faster. It's crazy in our lifetime. I mean, we were pre-iPhone. I know it sounds unbearable to you. I remember the first cell phone I ever used. Uh, honestly, we were as poor as church mice. We had an old VW, and... Um, and, and we shared it. We could only have one between the two of us, and we had our kids. And there was a guy in our church who was rich, and he had a Jeep. Now, you must remember in South Africa, that was a super cool car. And, and uh, he calls me one day, says, I'm going to London on business. Do you want to drive my Jeep? I'm in my imagination. It's down the Durban beachfront, styling. Yo, what's up? I mean, I'm getting in this whole groove. And then he said, I mentioned I have a cell phone. Now, I lie not to you. It was like a World War II uh, um, what do they call it? Walkie-talkie. It was massive. It was about so big. And I made sure, and he said, call whoever you want. I did. With this beast, with this beast that was wrapped around my face, taking up most of it as we went down the Durban beachfront. See, that's where I come from. And to see the social acceleration with the accompanying change fatigue has produced incredible disorientation anxiety and depression. So what on earth do I do with it? And then Jesus says, do not be anxious. And you like Jesus, it's easy for you to say, you were like this carpenter guy who spent a month walking between towns. You know? I mean, I get there now in minutes. And so there is a semblance of wrestling with this social acceleration that's very real. On the other hand, Michael Easter, and many of you have read his book, and I recommend the rest do, called The Comfort Crisis, says we are living progressively sheltered, sterile, temperature-controlled, overfed, under-challenged, safety-netted lives. Now, this is not a Christian. This is a journalist for men's health and an author of that very compelling book. We are living progressively sheltered, sterile, temperature-controlled, overfed, under-challenged, safety-netted lives. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the tension in which we find ourselves? Is it a surprise, dear friends, that we oftentimes feel like we're living in war? That we feel like we're at the collision point between forces and energies that are at work within us and this little human frame can't cope with it anymore. I was pastoring during the Civil War in South Africa. And there was many a Sunday I would come home after preaching my heart out, and I would be absolutely depleted. And I said to Meryl, I feel like I've got this, this yacht. Why, I don't know. I'm not a yachtsman. But I've got this 
is it a steering wheel or something? I, I've got this in, the, in my hand and we're riding through a storm and the waves are crashing on us as a community and I felt the weight and the pain of a trauma of a nation in a civil war. And you see, because it was evident, there were people being burnt on street corners, there were people being murdered en masse, the police were shooting the kids in the street. It's easy to understand we're at war and posture ourselves with that level of readiness. The problem is, we don't see it here. But that does not mean it is not true. Richard Foster, in a great little book on the disciplines, makes this interesting comment. He says, between 1861 and 1954, there were no books written on fasting, at least from his research. It was almost as if we forfeited this great art and gave it to the Catholics and the mystics, and we were evangelicals. We don't need this. I'm so delighted it's changing. Very quickly, dear friends, why are we going to fast together the first weekend in December. We're going to do what is affectionately called a partial fast. It doesn't use that word in Daniel, but we're going to do soup and fruit juice as a nice, easy introduction. Three days, Friday morning early, all the way through to Sunday night. We'll break it here together. We'll meet Saturday night, Friday night, Saturday morning. We'll do Genesis everywhere. We'll do a bunch of, and I've stolen that from Matt Larson. We're going to take a bunch of different spaces and we will meet there and pray together. Why? Well, I want to suggest three reasons and then some stories. Firstly, because I want to be part with you of developing this spiritual muscle in our community. Sabbath is good. Prayer is good. Study is good. Silence and solitude, worship, community are good. But this is a muscle group, dear friends, we need to develop for the war that we are in right now. It's not an optional extra. And it's one you and I are going to have to fight through because everything is, the, the idea that you come to church, who was it? Uh, uh, oh, I've forgotten his name. Rifle, I think his name is. An atheistic Jew who wrote, and he said, in the Middle Ages, peasants didn't go to church to be made happy. They went to church to make sense of their lives. I'm not inviting you to a journey of happiness. I'm inviting you into a combat zone where we can do battle with the enemy. Secondly, it's to help us identify the areas of our life where the world, the devil, and the flesh have bedeviled us. Honestly, read John Mark's book. I think it'll be incredibly helpful. There are others too, Peter Cazero and others. The world, the devil, and the flesh are defeating us. Why did I ask Rosie to tell her story? Because it's like many of yours. And I want us to be courageous enough before God to say, Oh God, I'm so sorry. I've hidden behind many things not to face the way in which the world, the devil, or the flesh have assaulted me, beaten me, driven me into captivity. And thirdly, there is great power in communal fasting, dear friends. Great power. It's not just you and me individually. There is great power when the fingers become a fist in the hand of God and what God can do. In the Second World War, the king, King George, I believe, in England, called the nation to fast as Germany was pummeling it. And for all the indicators were, England was going down. And the king called a nation to pray. A hundred years before that, 
the nation was called, and I quote, to a solemn fasting and prayer in view of the threatening invasion by the French, and the French did not invade. I have a friend, Jill Patterson is her name, and God uses Jill, she's older now, I think she's still alive, right? Um, but in the heyday of the times we were speaking of, she would be praying and God would show her where bombs were planted. Katy and Nick, who we had the other day, she spoke about being caught in one of the bar bombs that went off. And Jill would pray and she would call the cops and say, there's a, there's a bomb that's been placed, let's say, at Game or one of the uh, retail stores, and the cops would go there and uh, dismantle it. There is great power, dear friends, in fasting. All right, quickly some stories. Firstly, fasting silences the imposition of prevailing cultural voices. It's on a slide, I believe. What do I mean by that? We become so comfortable with a prevailing cultural voice. I'm telling the story with an American application. In 1985, as I mentioned, we were in a civil war. The prevailing socio-political core was amongst the whites, we're going to stop the advance of communism coming down through Africa. Mozambique on this side, Angola on this side, Zimbabwe just above us. And so from the 60s, communism advanced throughout Africa. And we the whites were sold the story, the prevailing cultural narrative was we will stop the communists from taking our country. And so we bore arms to stop communism. But it wasn't the prevailing black thought. The prevailing black thought as seen by the children who refused to go to high school, who protested no education without liberation. And so a whole generation of young African kids, high school, did not and would not go to school, no education without liberation. So what do we do in the middle of that? Are we, are, are, we, are we held captive to prevailing political thoughts? Do we just surrender? Do we just give up? Do we just say, oh, we can't make any difference whatsoever? We as a community and many others, I want that to be understood. We were not unique. One of the prophets rose up from amongst us, Malcolm, and he said, we've got to fast, and we've got to fast for 21 days. God wants us to pray for the nation. I wish I had time to talk on that event alone. We met every night. I'm so proud of our community. Mothers with babies came out every night. Businessmen and women went and traveled and they'd have business lunches and would have soup. And people would invariably say, we're at this cool restaurant. Don't you want a steak? No, we're fasting. Why are you fasting? For the nation. Now, to complicate it further, dear friends, Nelson Mandela was in prison. Now, for you, that's difficult to understand. I know that. But think for a moment of Osama bin Laden in prison in America. And the church rises up to say, God, would you liberate this man? Can you imagine the political backlash from that single prayer? But when, Man when Mandela was released, Madiba, the father of the nation emerged from 27 years of incarceration because he fundamentally believed in the equality of all human beings. You see, I believe that the church can move the nation because I've seen it with my own eyes.
can I, can I be honest, and I ho hope I don't offend you, the tragedy for me after 9-11 and the thousands who died and the families who mourned with them, I cannot even imagine what that was like. But I sat at the edge of my seat that day waiting for the church leaders to get up and say, dear friends, dear fellow believers, let's get on our knees and let's cry out to God for a period of fasting for our nation is under attack. And honestly, what did we get? Let's wave the flag. We have a nation sublimely divided. But we saw it happen in South Africa, where God brought a nation together. And white people spoke with tears about Madiba. And when he stepped down as president, hearts were broken because God raised up a Madiba. And right now, if I somehow could find a Madiba for America, not a divider, not a divisive man or woman, but a father or mother, my heart would leap with joy. Prayer changes the prevailing cultural voices. Do you know they changed the flag in South Africa? Can you imagine someone changing the American flag? That's the extent to which this changed. I believe in it with all of my heart. Secondly, fasting draws us into the Father's presence. Remember that beautiful story of Anna, the, the prophet who, uh, when Jesus was brought into the temple, it said that she had been praying and fasting in his presence, longing for his goodness to come amongst us. In, um, some of you know the story. I don't have time to qualify. It's sufficient to say during the lawsuit years, which are about five of them, I would take Wednesdays and I would take my beach chair and a blanket and my Bible and I would go and sit in a park and read Proverbs and fast. I had no other way out. I didn't know what to do. I'd never been betrayed and butchered as I was during those days. And the only thing I knew that would work was fasting and prayer. And that's what I did. Fasting woos us. You feel dry. I never quite know what it means when people say that. But for the sake of simplicity, I want to invite you into a journey of fasting that's not focused on the absence of food, but it's the absence of food that draws me into my sweet heavenly Father's presence in which I can encounter Him with all beauty and wonder. Thirdly, fasting reveals the false and shadow self that we hide away. Let me tell you about Michael and Mary, very dear friends. Mike was an artist. We ran marathons together. Long story about him, I don't have time for. Helen Mary was kind of one of the crew with us, and they got married. The marriage was never easy. It tended to be a bit volatile on occasion, and we were often drawn in to help put the marriage back together. But it was a 10-day water fast in about 1989, 90, somewhere in that vicinity. We were worshiping God, as is custom in fasting times, and one of the leaders came and said, Chris, would you come over? And I turned, and on the, we were in a school hall with stairs all the way up. And I saw Mike, I'm sorry. I saw Mike and Hello Mary sitting there with that dead stare on their faces when someone's been found out, and this is not good. And I walked across to them, and Terry was with me. 
And Mike said, Chris, I've been having an affair. And Mary says, I've been having an affair. Because fasting reveals the false self, the shadow self, the parts we hide. Is it a little scary therefore, Chris? Yes, it is. Mike and Helen Mary are now married 42 years in Australia. They've got three kids. I don't know how many grandkids. He is a beautiful artist, so she's a nursing sister, but it needed a fasting moment to expose the selves that were hidden in pain and trauma. Remember Exodus 34, when Moses came down from the mountain, had been fasting for 40 days, and it said they built a golden calf. Idols creep into our hearts. And what fasting does, it identifies those idols. The things that we alternate and replace God with. I'll move on quickly. Thank you for being so patient. I'm a fan of fasting even while I hate it. Fasting releases us from brokenness. Melanie, let me tell you about Melanie. Melanie is a stunning woman. I met her at 19, I had the privilege of doing her wedding with Rory. Tall, regal woman, carried herself with incredible dignity. Well, I knew Melanie's story. I didn't know the extent of it, and it was during that self-same fast. Melanie was standing in worship, as she always did, with her hands by her side. And I went across to her, and I said, Mel, do you mind if I pray with you? She never cried. She was not one of those people that gave herself to her emotions. But you see, the story behind Melanie was that her father was assassinated when she was 12. There had been a labor dispute on the, on the farm, and Dad got out in those old rural settings and opened the gate to drive through and then closed the gate behind him. And there was a, an assassin waiting for him as he got out of his car and took him out. She was 12. Her father was her everything. She was absolutely devastated when she heard a dear friend of hers father took her in and put her through school put her through college but you see Melanie could never worship God like this not because it's a charismatic culture but she felt she could never trust God fully and that night a few of us were you with us my love we started praying for her and a tear started rolling down her cheek and I watched her hands begin to unclench and then her arms begin to bend, and over a period of time, her hands lifted up as she worshipped her heavenly father who loved her more than her earthly father ever could or would. Why do I believe in fasting? Because fasting does that. Fasting enables us to regain control over our lives. Richard Foster again says, fasting reveals the things that control us. I'm not going to say anything. I've got a whole section there, but we, we need to be done. Two more quickly. Fasting separates us for the call of God on our lives. Remember Paul on the road to Damascus to kill Christians? Jesus takes him off his steed. That's my imagination saying what's not fully in the text. And he struck down, and in that moment he says two things. Who are you, Lord? What do you require of me? 
And what do the next verses say? They say that he went to Damascus and for three days he never ate or drank. What's the prevailing idea? That when we fast, God clarifies his call on our lives. We want the magic thing, don't we? We want him to just go, shh, 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 shh. okay, you're going to spend five years in Mongolia. Without being found in his presence, soaked and steeped with his word, our minds fully enraptured by his goodness. Number seven. Fasting unifies community in a remarkable way. Remember the story of Esther? Where um, Esther's arguably the most beautiful woman in the land. She's Jewish. And she's not allowed to reveal her Jewishness to the king. But Haman, one of the king's sidekicks, is absolutely committed to this destruction of the Jews. She's not allowed to appear before the king unless she is beckoned. And she says this to Mordecai, her uncle. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. There is something that glues us together when we are forged through fire. It is interesting. For those who have gone through the different fasts over the years, whether it's Glenridge, the church in South Africa, Southlands, the church in Brea, when I see people from those days, invariably they'll say something like, Chris, remember when we fasted? Never. Remember the new building? Never. Remember that guest speaker we had or teacher? Remember? No. Those aren't the things they put. Remember when we fasted because in the trauma of surrendering the control of our bodies, from food to obedience, God does extraordinary things. Now, I'm landing with us. I think fasting sets in order what's lacking in our soul. I think God gets in there as a divine chiropractor and works the, our spiritual skeleton and clicks us back into place. It surfaces everything that is icky about us. But it is a beautiful moment in which God takes us that step forward in our journey of transformation. Do I like fasting? Never once. Do I believe in fasting honestly with all of my heart? We'll talk more about this. That was what I wanted to do. I want you just to sit with your hands open on your lap for a moment. Just sit quietly. And I want you to ask God just to minister to you. We're going to go to communion. If the team will please pour the wine, this side, I think, great, juice that side. But I want you just to grab this moment and just to let God, the Holy Spirit, minister to you.